Come now to the scripture. Let me ask you, please, uh, to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, um, may your grace abound to us this morning. Help us, I pray, as we come to your word that we can listen and hear and, and it will resonate with us as truth and that we will have a great desire simply in believing but also in doing and living this out. Holy Spirit, um, as you breathed out these words through the Apostle, I pray that you would breathe them into us as well. Give them life as they uh, enter our minds and hearts and uh, cause these words to bring your grace this grace of transformation, not simply of understanding, but this grace of transformation that can cause us to walk in your ways. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Ephesians and chapter 5. Ephesians and chapter 5, please. I want to read just verses 22 to 33. Ephesians 5, please. <clears throat> Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit, submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we're members of his body, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And then together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. I want to take up these verses, uh, beginning in verse 22 to what I just read, 33. It comes, this particular section, in, in, a, in a part of this letter that's often referred to, and this was Luther's comment concerning it, the household codes, that is, how we're to live, you see, as uh, husbands and wives, children and parents, and even out, we're to live and to work, to live in the workplace. And so, so uh, it comes in this context of these household codes. It's all a particular human relationships, human relationships that were established at creation. Uh, the sense of, of work. You might remember that we read in Genesis chapter 2 that after God created um, Adam, he put him in the garden to work it, to cultivate it, to develop it, if you will. So here was this earth and he put Adam there and he says, now you're, you're to work this. So there was, there was work from the very beginning for human beings. We're workers. That's what we do. And, and that's a good thing. Work is good. And so he put Adam there to work, to cultivate um, the garden. 
And also he established marriage. This passage that we have in verse, what is it, verse 31. Therefore a man should leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. Uh, comes from Genesis chapter 2. So on the heels of creation of Adam and Eve. And together God says you're to be bound together. You're to be united together as one. So thus marriage was uh, established there in the Garden of Eden. In the very, in the very beginning uh, of creation. Uh, and, of course, family was to come because Adam and Eve together were to fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, to do that, to, to fill the earth, they would need children. And so we realize that this sexual intimacy, which produces children, comes through the context of marriage. Man should leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. This idea of becoming one flesh is more than sexual intimacy, but it's not less than that. And so this relationship of union uh, between husband and wife produces children. So we see all of these relationships, if you will, uh, are established or established at creation. Now, sadly, all of these relationships were adversely affected by the sin of our first parents. All of these relationships were adversely affected by the sin of our first parents. If you turn back to Genesis in chapter 3 and verse 16, this is after Adam and Eve sinned. You remember Adam hid and then he kind of blamed the situation on his wife and, uh, and ultimately upon God, if you will. But, uh, but this, this blaming comes, you see. Uh, and so... The effects of sin, verse 16, to the woman, um, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be uh, contrary to your husband uh, and he shall rule over you. And this is a negative kind of thing in essence. Um, And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you. Uh, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth to you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread to return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust uh, you shall return. So you see all of these relationships, whether it be in the context of childbearing or children that come forth from us who are uh, sinful, or the marriage relationship turning on its head, how husbands and wives are to relate to one another. One is to be, one is contrary to the other. One rules in an authoritative way, perhaps a sinful way. Um, and work now fighting back with weeds and all of that, which we know so well. But even in the context of any work relationships and any work situation, we find insecurities, anxieties, and difficulties, and so forth. The sense of it. So it wouldn't surprise us then that as Paul's writing to a church and he says, you're a new community. You're this community that's grounded and founded because of our Lord Jesus Christ. And and it shouldn't surprise us that all these relationships would change. We're no longer to be as we once were. And these relationships are no longer to be as they once were. But, But so then he begins to outline now relationships between husband and wife, parents and kids, and even in the context of work relationships as we'll As we'll see. So something's different now. Remember, we're being created as people who belong to Jesus. We're being created in the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. And so what we should see then in 
each relationship. Marriage, family, in work, something different about us. The likeness of God in that context, the likeness of God in that situation. So that's what he's laying out here. No surprise. Now, the outline is really, really straightforward. He addresses wives in verse 22. He addresses husbands in verse 25. And then in verse 32, he lays out his point, which is a a bit of a twist, at least for me, as I've read this over the years. And every time I read it, I go, wasn't expecting that. Wasn't expecting that. And then verse 33 is just simply a summary of of, of what he's been talking about with husbands and, and wives. Now, first of all, we shouldn't miss the fact that when Paul writes this letter, that he addresses wives, children, and as I have it in my version these days, bond servants. Okay? Now, it would have been very surprising, perhaps, to them. Because, you see, wives and children and bond servants were the marginal ones in the society. Nobody ever addressed them. But what Paul is saying is, I recognize the fact that wives, women, and children, and slaves, bond servants are members of the people of God. See, all of a sudden, again, that doesn't shock us that he would, he would address women and kids and workers, slaves in that context. But, but, but it did, what of them, because all of a sudden, they have the same status as everyone else, the same status, women and men, children and parents, slaves and masters, in the context of church in the context of the people of God, same status, not one above the other, not one below the other, but same status. And, and the, so women, children, now parenthetically, you know me well enough to know that when we get to that part, I am going to talk about why we baptize babies. <laughs> Sorry. So just be prepared. Um, Because he addresses children. He assumed that children were part of the community. He assumed that children were part of this community of faith. Uh, And and they weren't outsiders, but they were insiders, if you will, in in the sense that they they wouldn't have been had they not been part of this community with believing parents. So so here they are in this context. And then bondservants and masters, workers and employers, all together, the boss sits in church with his or her employee, you see. And they're exactly the same. When they're sitting in the church, they may not be exactly the same in terms of position when they're out in the workplace. But when they're here, you see, they're exactly the same. Exactly the same. So anyway, don't, don't miss that. Just put that in your mind. Uh, don't miss that. This is a profound thing that Paul is doing here in the culture of his, of his day. Now, it's clear as we read this, just reading the words, that he says that wives are to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. And so he's establishing an order, a relationship here, wives and husbands. Wives submit. Why? Because husband is the head uh, of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. And so that's something that we need to hear. And then he says this, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. So we get that. Christ is the head of the church. Christ has loved his church. Husband as head is to love his wife as Christ has loved the church. 
And then, of course, he says, therefore, um, a man should leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two should become one flesh. Because you see, there's this sense when a husband is loving his wife, he's loving himself. Not that she loses her identity in him, but that they've been joined together. Karen often, in our relationship, refers to that by saying things like, the, one of, the, the part of you that cries <laughs> is upset about this. The part of you that's anxious is, you need, to take a, you need to understand it because we're one. So if she's feeling it, I should be, in some sense, at least acknowledging it, right? Feeling it. Uh, she's happy, I should acknowledge that. Part of me is happy right now. I might not be, but she is, then there's some sense of happiness here, right? Because we're joined, we're joined together. We're, we're one. So, love as Christ loved his church. We, we, we sang just a few minutes ago about this union between Christ and his church. This oneness. And that's what he gets to in verse 32. There's a profound mystery here in the context of marriage. Because he, he, I would think he would say it's a profound mystery that a hundred, husband and wife could be joined together like this. Uh, that's mysterious, isn't it? I mean, when you think about that. Uh, and yet, he doesn't say that. He says, what I'm referring to when I talk about husbands and wives being joined together is what I'm referring to really is Christ and the church. In other words, there's something about marriage and church. There's something about this union between a husband and wife and union between Christ and his church. And he says, what, I, what, what I'm really after here, ultimately, is to see something about this union between Christ and his people, between Christ and his church. And so we need to bear that in mind as well. So all I want to do today, as you might suspect, this might take me a couple of weeks to get through this whole passage. But what I want to do today is kind of set this up. I want to set it up in such a way that we'll all be able to hear this passage. To set it up in such a way that we'll all be able to hear this passage. Um, When we talk... Uh, in the culture in which we live, about headship and submission. There's all kinds of reactions that take place. In fact, when we talk about marriage, all kinds of reactions take place in the culture in which we live. And so as Christians, as those who are followers of Christ, we need to, we need to grab a hold of these words, because they're in the Bible, and we need to grab a hold of what marriage is uh, and, and embrace all of that. Regardless of what our culture may think of it, regardless even of, even of what we've experienced of it or what we've seen of it. Because one of the difficulties always in picking up a passage like this on a Sunday morning in a congregation like ours, as we look out, uh, we have all kinds of, of, all kinds of people. We realize, first and foremost, that not everybody sitting here this morning at this service and the next are married. And so you come in, you sit down, and you go, ah, another sermon on marriage. <laughs> I'm not married. You see, some aren't married because, well, it would be creepy if you were married because you're like 12. Uh, you know, you're too young at this point uh, to be married, right? Uh, some uh, aren't married but will be. Some aren't married now. But they once were married, but because of divorce or death, they're not married now. Some of those may remarry, some may not. And so, so we, we come together as a, as a whole group of people, and we have this passage that's about marriage, and it will hit each one of us 
perhaps differently uh, because of our particular marital situation, either married or not married. But uh, let me just encourage you that for all of us, there's value here. Number one, because here you go. It's in the Bible, right? So that means it's important for us. It's in the Bible. It's a, we believe this thing, the book, to be the word of God. But we, we acknowledge when we come to the scripture and we, and, we, and we think about our lives to realize that God has the prerogative, comma, because he's God, comma, right, to define his creation. That God has the prerogative to define his creation. We are not autonomous self-defining beings. We try to be, but the truth of the matter is, we're the created ones. And the creator has a purpose for his creation. Uh, that should go without saying, but it's just simply true. So, so we're not autonomous, self-defining beings. We are created, thus Defined beings, defined by the creator, right? And so when we come to the scripture, uh, we're coming asking the question, who am I? We don't go within to ask that question. We don't go to others to ask that question. But we come to the scripture asking God, who am I? Who did you make me? But even better than that, us as human beings. Who did you make us to be? What are we to be like? And it shouldn't surprise us when we come to the scripture that we get a, an answer from God about this definition that's different than we may have come up with on our own. Sometimes we, we, we read the Bible and we go, that can't be right. Right? Why? Why? Because it doesn't fit with what I think or doesn't fit with what our culture has taught, taught us. Uh, or, or, But it's... What God has laid out for us. So, again, it shouldn't surprise us that we come to the scripture. It may say something different than we might expect. But here we come to it, you see, because it is, in fact, the word of God. He defines it. When he made the sun, he said the sun will shine like this. When he made the moon, he said this will be as it is. When he made trees, this is what they're to be. When he made human beings, male and female, he said this is, this is what I want your life to be. This is how I've designed your life to be as male and female, that a man should leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. And then he lays out for us what this relationship is to be like. Thus, wives, submit to your own husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And so he begins in this passage to lay this out uh, for us. So you see, if you're married, this is how how it should be in your marriage. I'm just smiling because I am married. And... uh, so I come with all the weaknesses of a husband uh, and uh, understanding my own failure. So, so trust me, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you more than I know today, uh, <laughs> if that makes any sense to you. I do that every Sunday, by the way. Uh, I'm never as good as what I call us all to be or never as faithful as what I call us all to be or never as believing as, all, as I call us all to be. That just happens to be my, my particular place in this body. So not all of us are married, but for those of us who are, this is the way uh, it, it, should, it should be. Um, for those not yet married, learn. 
And this is the way, if you're going to be married, it is going to be. And so begin learning now, not only that, but begin preparing for that. Uh, in my line of work, uh, perhaps one of the most frequent questions I get, especially from a certain age group, is, what do I look for in a spouse? What do I look for in someone to marry? You see, And, and so often, again, culturally, the line is something that goes like this. If, if, if you meet a couple and they're engaged to be married and you ask the husband something like, um, how do you know she's the one? More often than not, he will say something like, she's always there for me. And that's great. I'm glad she is. But then I follow up with is, are you always there for her? And, and do, you, do you find great joy in being there for her? In other words, can you, you just get up in the morning? You just can't wait to see her later in the day. And you can't wait to... Uh, serve her and, and to help her uh, and to be there for her, you see. It, because it, it isn't a selfish thing to be married. Oh, it kind of is. I mean, it's really nice to be married and the companionship is great and, and all of that can be very good. But if you're single, you need to be thinking, am I growing in my faith in such a way that I will be one who is a good spouse. And, and do I know what a good spouse is? As a woman, you're thinking, <clears throat> whatever the submission thing means, am I growing towards that? Do I have a servant's heart? Am I the kind of person who can see myself as equal and yet still servant? And as a young man or a man, you're thinking about being married. Am I growing to be like Jesus in such a way as he was the head that he gave himself? A am I growing in such a way that I see myself as one who may be given a responsibility in the relationship to lead and to oversee, but am I doing that in such a way that, that I'm not selfish in it, that it doesn't serve me, but rather I'm like Jesus giving myself for her well-being? Is, 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 does that through my soul. Am I growing like that? So if you're, if you're not yet married, be thinking about your own life. Am I growing in this way that I'm to be in the context of marriage? And then when you meet someone to ask yourself, if you're a woman, can I submit to this man? And ask yourself, if you're a, a man, am I willing to give myself to sacrifice? Am I willing to give myself for this, for this woman. You see this sense of being single. And for some, <clears throat> as Paul himself, you may never marry. Some may never marry for a variety of reasons. It's difficult to pinpoint all of them. Paul and Jesus even said there's a certain sense of being single for the sake of the kingdom. Single, as Paul would say, so that you're not encumbered by marriage so you can as he was a missionary, so you could go out and, 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 and do certain things that you may not otherwise do, take certain risks, if you will, uh, that you wouldn't take if you were, you were married. Some in our culture in these days, and this is a great blessing to the church, some recognize themselves to, be, to not be attracted to those of the opposite sex. And yet, as a follower of Christ, realizing that then 
They must be single and celibate for the sake of the kingdom and thus may never marry. And you may ask the question, then, why should those who are never going to marry worry about being married? Well, again, it's in the Bible, so it's good to know. Two, it's going to teach us a great deal just as we come to this passage about the relationship with Christ and his church. But please, let me urge you, if you're single, to realize that you have married friends to whom you can be of great help. Um, I've learned a tremendous amount about my own life and marriage from those who are single. Friends of ours, mine, who are single, have helped us in the context of marriage. Sometimes they can see things that we haven't been able to see. And so learn about marriage for the sake of your friends. Learn about marriage so that you can be a blessing to them in terms of counsel, in terms of help. So it's even good uh, in that regard uh, as well. Now, for others, this is a new concept, uh, headship and submission. For others, it may be that it's worse than just a new concept. It may be the fact that you've You've heard people who say this is how they live and you've seen their life and it's been destructive. That submission has been defined as someone who is inferior or someone who has no say, no voice, or blindly obeys. Or others have seen headship as being a dominance or someone who's authoritarian in their relationship. Someone who views themselves as the boss, someone who views themselves as superior. And you've seen that be destructive, even abusive. So if that's the case for you, uh, let me urge you, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Throw the bathwater out. Keep the baby. And the baby is the truth. And so let's try to understand it not in the false, wrong way, but in the true, right way. Because we all know that marriage can be difficult and even disastrous, or it can be delightful. Winston Churchill illustrated the disaster part of it once when a woman presumably came to him and said, Mr. Churchill, if you were my husband, I would make you drink poison. And he said to her, Madam, if I were your husband, I would drink it, right? So that's not a good situation. But if we can believe all the stories told about Churchill, on another occasion at another dinner party, the the question was asked, and we know these questions, we use these kind of questions when we're at a dinner party or a little gathering of people. And the question that was asked was, if you could be anyone else other than yourself, who would you be? And of course, Churchill being Churchill, everybody was waiting on his answer, presumably, he said this. He said, ah, I would wish to be Lady Churchill's second husband. And by that he meant, there's nothing better in my life than being her husband. And so if I couldn't be this, her first husband, then I'd want to be her second husband. Now, Churchill was known to say things that were Hmm. that would give himself applause <laughs> and make him look good in the eyes of others. So maybe this was just that. I don't know anything about his relationship with his wife that much. But, but, but don't you want to be married to somebody who says that? that, that, that I, I, that's the best thing about my life, to be married to this person to whom I'm married. Right. 
so what we want to do is understand marriage from the context of God's perspective so that we can actually uh, say that. Now, I don't know. Some of you may fit into other categories, but... <clears throat> But for me, as, as one who is married and understanding my own weakness in, 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 in loving my wife as Christ has loved the church, um, I come to a passage like this to listen to it and to do what I always do when I come to the scripture. Because there's a certain cycle that, I, I, uh, that takes place in my life, and I trust yours, and we've talked about this before. But this cycle of I come to the scripture, so I read the truth. What happens? Well, I trust that when I read the scripture, that God uses it in the context of my life like this, that the Holy Spirit first convinces me that this is true. And then secondly, the introspection, the pointedness in my own life shows me where I've been obedient and shows me where I've been disobedient and failed. And so when I see obedience in my life from the scripture, I read a passage of scripture and I said, oh, good. This is working in my life. I see this. Then the response is to give thanks to God because I realize that God's been at work in my life and he's moved me from a place of, of not obeying this to obeying this, moved me from a place of unholiness to holiness in this area. And so at least for now, I can give him thanks. I saw it. Thank you. But this happens as well, perhaps more so that I see where I've failed. And when I see where I've failed, then what do I do? Well, I admit it. I confess it. That's why we began uh, before our confession time with First John chapter, chapter 1. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so when I read the scripture and I realize I haven't, then I confess it. Confess it to God. I may have to confess to my wife. You may have to confess to your wife, to your husband. Uh, when you come along these, these things, to confess, to receive Forgiveness. Then what? Well, then the next step we call repentance. And repentance then is to, is to have a sense of change, that, that I desire to change. And, and I know that for me to change means that God has to be at work in my life. And so I pray that he'll help me. I, I see the truth. I see what I'm, I, who I am to be, how I am to live. And so I pray, God, help me be that. Help me live like that, you see. Uh, and so I repent of, of my sins and then trust him that he'll enable me to walk this out. Then what happens? Well, I read the Bible again. Then what happens? Well, I look into my life. And then what happens? Well, I see where I've obeyed and I give thanks. And then I see where I've sinned and I confess. And then I repent and then I go out again. And that seems to be the cycle of my life. And it's not that simple. And it's not without tears and effort and all of that. And that's the sense of it. And so that's where I am now. But let me, before I finish, for another hour and a half. Let me, before I finish, just bookend this passage. So the next week we can, we can read it. I trust you'll read it before then. We can read it and I trust you're living it, but we can then live it out even more so as well. A couple of bookends. First of all, we need to understand that this passage, as well as what follows, is in the context of verse 18 of chapter 5, which is this verse. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. You see... Uh, our hope that we can actually live like this as husbands and wives, your hope if you're a single person and perhaps one day being married, the hope that you can actually live like this in marriage is the 
hope that we have through the help of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Now, we we notice that the evidences of being filled with the Spirit is that we come together to worship, that we that we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and we address uh, one another, uh, singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts, always giving thanks to God the Father uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so this sense of worship, we we realize that we are worshiping people when the Spirit of God um, uh, fills us. And also that he says we're to submit, this is verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so we're to submit to each other. That is that the Spirit of God works in us a sense of worship and a sense of servanthood. To submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what he makes us to be. That's what the Holy Spirit does in, in us. And so you see, we are to then filled with the Spirit, have hope that God will enable us, if you're a wife, to submit to your husband as unto the Lord, if you're a husband, to love your wife as Christ has loved the church. Uh, By the way, parenthetically, there's no command here for a husband to be the head, by the way. He just is. The command is to love. The command is to love your wife as Christ has loved the church. And so that, you see, is what we're to do. Um, And what happens, you see, when the Holy Spirit fills us is that he brings Jesus to us up close and personal. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Remember when we talked about this a few weeks ago, that the Holy Spirit has come to glorify Jesus, to reflect Jesus, to show us who Jesus is. And so when we're filled with the Spirit, then what's true of us? Then we're getting it about Jesus. We understand the gospel. We understand why he came. We understand our sin. We understand his grace. We understand this wonderful gift of salvation that we have through him. And then you see the spirit comes to bring the very presence of Christ to us in such a way that he forms Christ in us. Key verse here is chapter 3 and verses 14 through uh, 19 where we hear of this spirit at work in us. And so Paul says, this is what I'm going to pray for you, that you may be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That Christ may dwell within us. What happens when Christ dwells in us like this? What happens when he comes to make his home in us? What happens is we become like him. And so you see, when we're called into marriage as husbands and wives, we're called to be like Jesus. Because Jesus was submissive to his father. This wasn't a sign of weakness. This wasn't demeaning for him. This was a sign of his greatness. We, we read from Philippians in chapter 2 about Jesus, verse 5, verse 6 though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Kathy Keller, in a book she co-wrote with her husband, uh, Tim, uh, The Meaning of Marriage, which I would recommend to you as a really fine book on marriage, puts it like this. She said, Jesus... Though equal to God, emptied himself of his glory, 
took the role of a servant. He shed his divine privileges without becoming any less divine and took on the most submissive role, that of a servant who dies in his master's service. In this passage, we see uh, taught both the essential equality of the first and second persons of the Godhead and yet the voluntary submission of the Son to the Father to, to secure our salvation. Jesus' willing acceptance of this role was a holy, voluntary gift to his Father. So when a wife is being called to submit to her husband, she's being called to be like Jesus. For he was submissive, and he gave himself in his master's service, his father's service. In the same way, when a husband is called to be head, he's called to be the head like Jesus was the head. And how was Jesus our head? He was head by giving himself, you see. He said, I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This is how I am the authority over the church. I gave myself for her. So you you see, a wife is always seeking the well-being of her husband. And a husband is always seeking the well-being of his wife. And while we have two different words here, submission and head, <clears throat> so they must mean something different from each other, the underlying heart of it is exactly the same. It's, 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 a, it's a lack of a self-focusedness, if that's even a word. A lack of self-focusedness. The focus is on the other. The focus of Jesus when he came was on his father to please him and on this people for whom he would give himself to save them. And thus he died in our stead. He gave himself, you see. So in one sense, submission, headship meets at this point, first of being like Jesus and secondly, of being servants, of thinking what's best for the other, not what's best for me, you see. So keep that in mind as we come to these uh, passages, this common element. And then finally this, very quickly, verse 32, this profound statement. This mystery is profound. What mystery? Well, there's this mystery of this union between a man and a woman. But he says there's, there's, there's something else here that's profound about that because I'm saying that it refers to or looks at or speaks to or is according to the relationship between Christ and his, his church. When I do a wedding, which we do a lot of them around here, I do weddings. One of the things that I say very often to the couple is, you do know, don't you? that your marriage is bigger than both of you. I mean, it is true that God in his kindness and, 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 and graciousness gives us spouses, gives us marriage for our, as the old liturgies put it, welfare and happiness, because it's, it's good for us. But there's something else here, too, that's bigger than that. And I say, do you realize that your marriage reflects the relationship between Christ and the church. 
Do you realize that your marriage is a living parable of the relationship between Christ and the church? That's why it's so vital. That's why it's so important. This permanent, exclusive, legal commitment to each other. This marriage takes on this vast dimension because it speaks to the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, what I hope for in a marriage at that point in time, but that the, the bride and groom standing before me will shiver and go, oh, man. But they don't because they're not listening. But, um, but everybody else, you know, should be listening. And then you hear it again today. But that's the sense of it. Don't ever miss the shock of that. Shall we say the profundity of that? That, that my little life married to my wonderful wife speaks to this great, glorious union between Christ and his church. So this week, what I want you to do is think about that. In whatever context you find yourself, whether marriage is a scary thing to you, I'm assuming you're not married, if that's true. I hope if you are married, it isn't true. But the marriage is a scary thing to you because of what you've seen and what you've experienced and what you've heard and all of that. So, so think about it. Think about this in the context of your life. If you're single, anticipating marriage, think about this in the context of your own life. If you're in a marriage that's difficult, think about this in the context of your life. If you're married, think about it in the context of the marriage which you are and will, I trust, find yourself. Think about it. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us this morning. Again, the various uh, situations we find ourselves in in relationship to marriage. And so I, I would pray that you would enable those of us who are married to take this up and to Think about how we're to be, how Jesus is to show himself through our lives, whether we're wives or husbands. And wives can submit joyfully and honestly by the power of the Holy Spirit. And husbands can can love and give themselves for their wives in all honesty and joy by the power of the Holy Spirit. And may marriages reveal this profound truth because of Christ we are united with him and God. What an amazing thing. Please work that in us. Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.